Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Trade tariffs, China, the United States. Let's find out more from Timothy Tim Adams. He is the president and chief executive of the Institute of International Finance based in Washington. Tim Adams, thank you very much for being here. Just to give a little background, a former Treasury official, and you have served as the Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs, which means you know everything about exchange rate policy, G7 meetings, the IMF and the World Bank. So put it to work for us here and tell us about the rise of uh, trade tensions between the United States and seemingly the rest of the world. Well, first of all, Tim, thank you very much for having me on today and happy Friday to you. uh, These topics are a gift that keeps giving and especially with the president's tweet today. Uh, Look, I've been spending the last three or four months traveling the globe. I've lost track of the number of countries I've visited. And the overall macro conditions are actually really quite good. The order books are filling up and demand is strong and labor markets are tight. But everywhere I have traveled, there is this sense of unease with respect to trading regimes and trade policy and the administration's perspective on trade. So there's a lot of caution out there. And I think, unfortunately, it can begin to seep into corporate boardrooms and potentially uh, damage market confidence. We're not there yet, but potentially down the road, we could get there. So, Tim, I just want to take a step back, because one thing that I'm struck by as we talk about President Trump's threats of of putting tariffs on goods coming into the country from, from elsewhere I'm struck by the fact we don't talk a lot about the existing tariffs uh, that are currently in place. Can you put into perspective U.S. tariffs versus the rest of the world, uh, given uh, President Trump's rhetoric saying that we really have been subject to unfair trade practices for a long time? Well, it really varies by sector, and it's a patchwork quilt of of tariff structure. By and large, the U.S. has at incredibly low levels, about two and a half percentage points on average of, of tariffs on imports. Whereas other countries are a little bit higher, but it really varies sector by sector. As you know, we have a 25% tariff on imported trucks. So whether it's farm products or industrial products, it very really varies. But you know, over the last 40 years, we have been very active through a series of bilateral, multilateral rounds of lowering our tariffs, and actually that has benefited the U.S. economy and it most certainly benefited the U.S. consumer. All right. So what I'm trying to figure out is for the countries that have imposed tariffs. Um, what is the benefit? In other words, uh, what what can we expect the effect? I know that people are saying it'll slow the economy, but is there any beneficial effect from imposing tariffs? Well, if if you believe in, in in import substitution, or if you think that you want to try to pull back supply chains back to the U.S., uh, if that's your objective, then you can use tariffs as a way to distort prices and 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 redirect trade back to the U.S. But, you know, in some ways, we're fighting the wars of, of the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, the U.S. economy is predominantly a services-based economy, and we run a surplus in services, and we run a surplus in services with, with the Chinese, actually. So in some ways, we're, we're focused on a very small percentage of the, of the U.S. economy, and we're focused almost obsessively so on, on trade imbalances, when, in fact, it's a, just a small part of the overall story of the U.S. economy. 
Can you speak specifically about the United States and its relationship with China? And who do you believe, if anyone, has the upper hand in these trade negotiations? Sure. Well, it's strained right now. And, and it, you know, there have been a, a, occasions over their long history with China where they have become strained. I think the Chinese, and I was just in Beijing two weeks ago, I think they're looking uh, for some signals from Washington as to what it is this administration actually wants from them. And they get a lot of mixed signals depending on who they talk to. I think they're looking for a way to to get an exit strategy from where we are to avoid these huge tariffs. The president talking about huge numbers today. Uh, I think they're just looking for signals, and it's not clear what the current administration wants from them. But I think they're willing to, to come to the table. You know, Tim, I was struck by President Trump's tweet this morning about the dollar and about uh, accusing China and European Union of currency manipulation. We had Brad Setzer of the Council on Foreign Relations on the radio show a, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying, you know, Pretty much every economist out there doesn't think that trade imbalances uh, hinge or will be affected by tariffs. What they'll be affected by is exchange rates and interest rate policies. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, how much do you expect President Trump to kind of home in on weakening the dollar uh, to sort of offset the effects that we've seen so far? Yeah, I think I think uh, absolutely right. And most economists, 99 percent of them would agree that imbalances, external imbalances, surpluses or deficits are a function of macro policy right now. We're running incredibly uh, uh, supportive, accommodative fiscal monetary policy, and that spills over into the external sector. Uh, tariffs on a macro basis won't have much effect in the short term. It sort of moves trade around. It will certainly uh, raise prices for consumers and, and uh, inputs for goods here. But it, uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, if we're running an incredibly hot economy, and we are, then interest rates are going to rise, as we've heard from Jay Powell, and that affects the value of the dollar and, and external imbalances. Let's shift your attention just for a moment. I want to get your thoughts on what is going on with Brexit, and do you believe mm -hmm. that there will be a bank exodus from London? I don't think there's a bank exodus, but I think more and more. In fact, I was just on the phone with a, with a banker just 10 minutes ago who was worried about, are we really just going to stumble into a hard Brexit? And, and I watch it every day, and I get downloads of uh, input from, from London, from our office there. And I must say, it's uh, the, the being whipsawed from day to day is is a bit tiring. But I've grown really concerned that we're that we're going to run out of time, that we're going to stumble into uh, what would be a hard Brexit, and that would potentially be really damaging to the to London as a, the city and the UK economy. But you know, it's hard to dismantle and disrupt what has been a, a, a financial center for hundreds of years. So I think London remains an important financial center, but they could do some damage. You know, Tim, to, to tie all of this up together. I mean, what we're seeing is sort of a repudiation of the world order where you have uh, a push toward uh, more freely flowing trade and cooperation with the major powers. And I'm wondering, given your decades of experience uh, with trade policy, where do you think this goes? Well, it, 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 one would argue, the administration or the White House would probably argue that they're simply using these tools and access to market to actually open up other markets that they actually believe in, in trade, but they want it to occur on a fair basis. I mean, who can be against fairness? We're all for that. My concern is that there's potential for miscalculation that that we end up with a protracted period of, of trade wars or trade skirmishes that actually ultimately impact negatively trade flows, capital flows, investment flows, market sentiment, consumer sentiment, and sentiment in the boardroom. And we screw up what is really a really great U.S. economy. And I hope that doesn't happen. 
Tim, want to just quickly get your thoughts on the competitors to traditional banks and finance companies coming mm -hmm. from companies such as Alipay, Amazon, and Apple. Is the financial industry ready? We're getting ready. We've been uh, we've been putting up warning signs for four years now that huge internet platform companies, especially based in China, pose uh, serious risks to all incumbent financial institutions. They are financial intermediaries, and Financial runs the largest money market fund in the world. They provide insurance products and uh, wealth products and financial intermediation, yeah. and yet they face a very different rule book. And we're just asking for a, a level playing field, to quote the president. Tim Adams, thank you so much for being with us. Tim Adams is president and chief executive officer of the Institute for International Finance based in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's the former undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs, uh, has been uh, helping to shape U.S. trade policies uh, for decades. Well, the Aspen Security Conference uh, typically is a place where policy is talked about in public, uh, but uh, this time a little bit different. The uh, president's national security advisor, uh, Dan Coates, was uh, in the room when he was informed about an invitation that the president had made to Russian President Vladimir Putin to l come to Washington in the fall. Let's listen to what uh, Dan Coates said after hearing about this. I don't know what happened in that meeting. Um, uh, I think uh, as time goes by, and the president has already mentioned some things that happened in that meeting, I think we will learn more. But that is the president's prerogative. Um, uh, if he had asked me uh, how that ought to uh, be conducted, I would have suggested a different way. That was uh, Dan Coates uh, speaking at the Aspen Security uh, Conference in Colorado. Also in Colorado now is Toby Harshaw, our editor at Bloomberg Opinion for all things related to national security and defense. Toby, uh, what can you tell us about the mood at this meeting and what are your thoughts about the comments from uh, former Republican Senator Dan Coates, who is now uh, one of the nation's top security advisors? Uh, mine was awfully good, Tim and Lisa. I'm standing on an overlook of the Roaring Fork River watching a black bear fish for trout at the moment. Um, the mood in the room itself yesterday when Andrew Mitchell informed him that he had invited Putin to come to Washington was, it, it's like a lot of things with this administration. It was shocking, but not surprising. Um, you know, Donald Trump does what he wants to do, and he doesn't even tell his director of national intelligence about it. Well, but Toby, I guess the question is, as President Trump sets up another meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, I'm just wondering, what checks does his uh, security team have on what he says or what he plans with Vladimir Putin? I mean, uh, can they shoot it down if they think that it is a national security threat? Uh, what are you looking at here? Um, we, you know, we have no clue. Um, they met, you know, in private with just translators uh, in Helsinki. Um, Dan Coates didn't actually specifically say that he knows everything they talked about. Um, all he said was that details will come out over time. Um, we have no idea what what Trump promised. We know that the director of national intelligence um, was, you know, completely uh, out of the loop um, that. Uh, Trump was considering this whole sending of uh, of U.S. interrogators to Russia and vice versa. Well, I guess, Tony, um, well, uh, 
Sorry to break in there, but I, one thing that, that I'm struck by is I know that there was a proposal put out by the Democrats saying, let's subpoena the translator uh, that came with President Trump to try to find out what was discussed. I'm wondering, uh, there that was shot down by a number of Republicans. I'm wondering why? Um, because the president doesn't want to do that, and the president is the most popular person in their party right now. Um, and the few times that they have crossed him, um, you know, have not always turned out well for them. Toby, tell us a little bit about Dan Coats, the national security advisor. He's a former Republican mm-hmm. senator from Indiana, and about four years ago, he was on a blacklist that the Kremlin had put together, that Russia had put together, banning U.S. Mm -hmm. officials from entering Russia. And I just love his quote when he heard that he was banned. He said that while I'm disappointed that I won't be able to go on vacation with my family in Siberia this summer, I'm honored to be on the list. Well, he's in Aspen this summer. Uh, yeah, he's he's actually the um, he's the director of national intelligence. John Bolton's the national security advisor. Um, he uh, has always taken a very very strong line on Russia. He was, has been sort of the hero of both the NATO and the Helsinki debacles in terms of the administration. Um, but you got to think he's pretty far out of the loop. Um, that you know he's he's uninformed on this stuff. The White House is obviously not telling him what's going on. Um, he's a stand up guy, but he's getting stood up. Yep. Toby, I'm just struggling to understand. I mean, on one hand, there are a lot of question marks here, and uh, it's an unusual meeting for sure. On the other, I guess, uh, you know, people might be saying, well, the media is making too much of this meeting and of President Trump's promises. It's good for the uh, two countries to have a good relationship. And uh, President Trump isn't necessarily changing policy right now by himself. So, you know, what do you say to that? And what is the scope for President Trump to unilaterally change policy with respect to the U.S. and Russia? Um, Well, you know, first of all, that communication is good. Um, You know, Reagan and Gorbachev met several times uh, and came out with some pretty important, you know, non-proliferation agreements. Um, It's good to have that channel. Um, The problem is that this is, you know, this is not a normal president. Um, We don't know what's going on. You know, Reagan kept the public informed and and his staff did. Um, So we don't know what was said uh, behind closed doors at that meeting. We don't know if anything was promised. Um, They were pretty in the press conference afterward. Um, They didn't really say much at all about what they might have talked about. Um, but then, you know, the next day they were saying that they had, a, you know, we're working on a deal on Syria. Um, so, uh, you know, I just, I, I have to say communication is good, but you also have to communicate with the American public on this. Just quickly, Toby, what do you think the future of Dan Coats is? He's a former U.S. ambassador to Germany. Uh, he really entered politics by winning Dan Quayle's old house seat. Um, I can't imagine he would stay much longer, would you? I mean, he, how, how can you do your job um, if the president's making it impossible to do your job? Um, John Bolton, you know, is, is relatively brand new in this administration, and he seems to have lost favor, you know, sort of immediately. Um, I, I, I honestly don't see how these people um, can, can stay in this administration. Kirsten Nielsen, the... Um, uh, the Homeland Security Director was secretary was here yesterday and was asked that question point blank, yeah. um, and she, you know, she twice um, and asked 
yes, no, and she wouldn't answer yes, no. She was very good at deflecting questions. Yeah. Um, you know, and she's she's sort of the understudy for General Kelly, the, right. the chief of staff, and I can't imagine, you know, that he's still there much longer. Yeah. Toby Harshaw, thank you so much for your insights. Toby Harshaw is an editor with Bloomberg Opinion, currently watching uh, Bears Fish for Salmon in Aspen. Thank you so much for being with us. The administration of President Donald Trump has enacted tariffs on more than $35 billion of Chinese-made goods, and that includes some textiles. And here to tell us about the effects of those tariffs and what the industry can face in the future is Rick Helfenbein. He is the president and chief executive of the American Apparel and Footwear Association. They are, of course, based in Washington, D.C., and can be followed on Twitter at Apparel Footwear and R. Helfen. Okay, R. Helfen, give us an update. You were in Washington, I believe, just yesterday. Just yesterday. What is the feeling? What's the mood on Capitol Hill and the people you speak to and what it means for your industry? Well, I mean, I'm getting a sense on Capitol Hill that at least on the Senate side, they'd uh, like to rein the uh, president's ability to levy tariffs in because it's getting particularly out of control. On the Republican side? On the Republican side, and which would, quite frankly, have the most impact. And, uh, you know, they're, they're also, uh, to be candid, looking at steel and aluminum. Uh, we'd like them to look at everything. You know, that's the steel and looms the 232 group. We'd like them to look at the 301 group. We are extremely concerned as an industry. All right. So just to sort of uh, bring in today's news, President Trump today uh, said he's, quote, ready to go with tariffs and $500 billion of Chinese imports. Uh, this would be, in your words, uh, ahead of the segment, the whole enchilada. What would that do if it went through uh, to your industry? It would have severe impact because we are an industry that is trapped to some degree. 41%, 41% of all apparel coming into the United States comes from China. 72% of all footwear comes from China. 84% of all accessories, that includes handbags and travel goods, comes from China. And you could say, wow, why so much? Why didn't you protect yourself against this? Believe me, if our industry could have moved, it would have moved. But China just does it better and does it more competitively. So we are entrenched there. Now, you're going to raise prices on an industry that's already tariffed. That's not a good thing. I mean, think about it. The average tariff coming into America is 1.4%. The average tariff on apparel is 12.5%. The average tariff on footwear is like 11.5%. So you're going to add 10% on top of that? You must be kidding. Do you know what that'll do to retail? Do you know what it'll do to the consumer? You know, No, what will it do? It will, simply put, sales will go down, jobs will be lost, prices will go up. It's a triple negative. You cannot win in this scenario. And we have no place else to the goods. It is already baked into the system that this will be an inflationary cycle because people are trying to run out of China now. You can't put 10 pounds in a five pound sack. It will burst. So they're running to Vietnam, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Philippines. Where are they going to go? 
everybody's raising their prices. So you're going to see back to school. You know, Prime Day just happened. Should have doubled what you bought because the prices are going to go up, come back to school, come the spring, no matter what, whether these tariffs go through or not. The scare is real. Are the companies that you speak to boosting their inventories in anticipation of greater tariffs? They're trying every tactic they can. They can. Most of the companies in our group have set up many war rooms to try and figure out, well, exactly how much product do I have in China? Can I move some product out of China? Should I bring goods early to avoid the price increase? They're thinking any which way they can to try and stay competitive. You know, the numbers in the retail side were not great. We had more bankruptcies last year than we did in 2008. Think about that. But just, you know, I want to go back to something that you said, which is that the retail industry can't avoid this, um, that China just does it better and cheaper. Why? And, and could it be that the U.S. could be prompted to do it better and cheaper if there was more focus on that? Well... The part of our industry that a lot of people don't understand, it, it's not the raw material part necessarily. It's the assembly part, which is highly labor intensive. Consequently, uh, you need to be near where the raw materials are, and most of the raw materials come out of China. So you bring the sewing, the assembly part closer to where it's manufactured. You have great infrastructure, you have great logistics, and it works in China, and that's why the industry is there. Look, you know, nobody thought, we thought back in March when these tariffs started coming out, we thought very clearly they'd run through the whole number. The whole, what's the whole number? We sell to China $130 billion. We import from China $505 billion. That's the number President Trump used today. 505, $500 billion, he said. That means everything would be hit. Everything, including us. In the second round, he hit us uh, partially hit us on hats. They were, they were trying to avoid consumables. Hit us on hats. He hit us on handbags, travel goods. So we've got that already in the second tranche. Now we go into the third tranche. You know, I think what they figured, you know, the old expression, you pluck a chicken one feather at a time. Well, at the end of the day, you're going to get a naked chicken. And that's going to gonna happen to our apparel industry. You have a bunch of naked chickens running around because the price is just going to go through the ceiling. Talk about machinery and the actual equipment that is necessary to make all of these products. Where does that currently come from? It comes from all over the world, but a fair bit of it came from China. And in the first $50 billion that was levied, uh, there was a significant amount of machinery that was used, A, to make socks, to sew footwear in America, because we also represent the Made in America group. So they're trying to survive. They're buying their equipment from China. They're going to tax that. We went to the USTR uh, conference group, and we testified, and they removed that. They've been very kind to us. They've been trying to protect consumables. So then you come out with the second $200 billion, and they hit us again, and they hit more machinery, and they hit more textile. So what happens? You want to set up a sewing factory in America, and you buy your textiles from Asia because they're not made here. What's going to happen? You so, just priced yourself out of the domestic business. So just, just uh, to wrap things up here, how much can consumers expect to pay more for retail goods should this uh, tariff on $500 billion of Chinese goods I think go a minimum, you know, we, we talk about $500 per household, but now I think it's going to be significantly higher. I wouldn't be surprised if you see prices increases upwards of 20%. So by now... Have a strong back to school because come this spring, watch out.
Rick Helfenbein, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Rick Helfenbein is president and chief executive of the American Apparel and Footwear Association based in Washington, D.C. Uh, joining us here in our 1130 studios just back from Washington, D.C. and talking with some of the representatives currently trying to grapple uh, with the consequences on all sides. General Electric cannot catch a break. The company beat earnings, released earnings that on the face of it looked pretty good. Shares in pre-market trading rallied a touch. And then parsing through the details, they are down now nearly 4%, bringing year-to-date losses to more than 23%. What happened? The person who will know is Karen Eubelhart. She's industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us now. Uh, Karen, what's going on now? It looks like the black hole called power uh, could be a bigger black hole. And they, frankly, it, it they don't know you know, how far down it's going to keep going. And that was that was the first question on the call. Um, he basically said it's a mul- uh, the CEO said it's a multi-year issue. We knew that to fix it. But it sounds like it's still going, you know, it's going down 30 percent after it went down 50 percent. And if it, it came across, they don't have their arms around that big business. Remember, that's going to be their biggest business when uh, they remake GE. So there's there was a lot that the story was really power. I would say. And then a little bit, you know, uh, aerospace margins were down a little bit, but that's the timing of launching their new engine. That's not a concern. Karen, how long have you been covering GE? Oh, about eight or nine years. When you look at what Flannery, John Flannery, the chief executive has done, do you believe there's any more that he could do? I think he's got to take, and this, 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 you know, the cost, the cost cutting in power is probably not enough. Um, and I think that is a big concern. You know, we've done, he announced a billion dollar uh, cost cutting program. The footprint's still too big. He's laying off 12, uh, 6% of the people, 12,000. That's just not enough. Um, he's got to do more. And uh, I think he was hoping that the market would stabilize. And it's still going down over 20 percent. All right. So General Electric is a special story of pain that seems to be ongoing with uh, shareholders offering them very little leeway. I'm trying to figure out industrial companies broadly are generally outperforming. We've seen this with Honeywell earnings that came out earlier today. Uh, And just in general, almost one fourth of industrial companies in the S&P 500 index reported second quarter results in all 18 have a beaten on the bottom line. Why is the narrative not shifting to these companies are in good shape, synchronized global growth is still a thing? Why aren't we talking that way? Because people are concerned about the longevity of, you know, the good times. Um, The peak of the cycle comes up in almost every call. Uh, I've had a couple of companies report very good numbers already, and it doesn't seem to matter. In some companies, such as Caterpillar and, you know, some of these uh, global companies, the tariff thing keeps coming up again. So trade concerns. Um, You know, it's really a question of, okay, it's great now, but how long is it going to stay great? Back to GE specifically, how much patient do you think shareholders are going to be with John Flannery? 
I think they're already losing some patients because uh, they haven't really seen anything turn yet. Um, he gave the big plan, but now we've got to wait 12 to 18 months for health care and two to three years for Baker Hughes. So um, I think the patience is uh, very limited, actually. Think that we could see any kind of change at the top of GE? No, I think I think the board will give him some time because it is. I mean, it is a multi-year problem to move this big ship. But and 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 he's announced some bold moves. I think they're going to give him time to execute it. All right. So General Electric uh, definitely uh, still struggling through the pain. I'm just wondering, elsewhere on the industrial landscape with Honeywell and some of the other earnings, was there anything that that sort of stood out to you, especially as you said? They're still doing pretty well, but they are concerned about those tariffs. Uh, you know, the organic growth was really superb um, at at Honeywell, even greater than uh, people expected. Uh, so that the the level of growth actually really surprised me, and it was largely driven by aerospace. Aerospace is booming, and frankly, it is for GE as well. But they've got bigger bigger problems. So that's a that's a ter- a good news story, um, and. Uh, the global growth is there. So, I mean, the top line looks really, really good. Um, it's, as I said, how, how long does it stay good? Well, but Karen, this is actually really interesting to me because it raises the question, if, say, there is some resolution to the trade tensions that have been escalating, should these industrials outperform much more than they have so far? I, I think that would I think that would really help because people are not don't we don't have our arms around it. How big is it? How bad is it? Um, what's he going to do next? Um, you know, and this escalation just brought the fear back. And so, there's a, and there's yeah. a discount sort of baked into yeah. the shares as a result of that that really isn't borne out by the numbers, correct? Right. Right. There's not really been much impact, and there probably won't be much impact uh, at least this year. Um, and we don't know how serious this is going to be. If any, if it's you know uh, talk to you know big talk and little action, we have to see. But you know. Um, um, you've got a long, elongated cycle for a lot of these end markets. You've got interest rates going up. You've got, uh, you know, trade concerns. It's all adding up to, all right, is this as good as it gets? And cyclicals in particular and um, industrials in general, they discount a downturn way ahead. And I think that's sort of what, that's some of what's going on. Just a th- quick thought on Honeywell. Free cash flow. Yeah. Uh, $1.7 billion. Yeah. Yeah, that was what is that like? That's a forty-two percent increase. Yes, and uh, you know, on the cash flow conversion, it was one hundred and eight percent, which is way ahead of what they had expected. Uh, you know, their margins were better in every business. Uh, you know, the growth was better in every business, so they're kind of coining cash. And uh, he wants to the the CEO um, Adam Check wants to uh, buy something, but he's 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 afraid of the prices so he's just generating all this money he's done he's doing more buyback uh to try to use some of that cash but he really wants to do acquisitions and they're they're expensive thanks very much karen Ubelhart, industrials analyst for bloomberg intelligence speaking to us about general electric and honeywell Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.